In this episode of Elton Reads a Book a Week, we'll rip into the memories of a nerdy actor who banged a young Demi Moore in her prime, you know, before Bruce Willis and Ashton Kutcher ruined her. Plus, uh, he played an iconic character that inspired a million courageous dorks and their Halloween costumes, right? And he also managed to work with a fresh-off-the-wagon Charlie Sheen while he was careening headlong into drug-fueled insanity. Plus, he did all of this by carving out a career that started out because he looked like another actor. Yeah. Plus, plus hookers. Mm-hmm. No, oh, yeah, there's more. Stick around. Stick around. Countdown for blast off. X minus five, four, three, two, X minus one, fire. Hello, and welcome to Elton Reads a Book a Week, a podcast that's so cult, its audience is just you. My name is Elton, and I read a book a week. Before I get to the book, though, some updates, I guess. I don't know. It's kind of an up. I guess it's housekeeping, but I hate... Housekeeping is such a stupid... But I mean, there it is. It's housekeeping. There has to be... There has to be a better word for it, whatever this part is. Anyway, it's the state of the podcast address... Podcast update address? I don't know. Let me, I'll get it over with quick. Anyway, I've been tweeting a lot more, shouting out into the void, if you will. Uh, overall, just trying to keep up with social media and whatnot because I suck at doing that, but I like hearing from you. So, and a big thank you to all the new followers I've gotten on Twitter and, and Facebook and everything. Thank you and welcome. I truly appreciate you. I really, really do. I've been putting up uh, Twitter polls to decide what episode to do next what you know what book it's going to be and all that that's how i that's how i got this one so if you want to participate in that follow the podcast that elton reads a lot on uh, twitter or any of the other social media platforms just search for this you know just search for elton reads a book a week you'll you'll get it i've been uh roaming facebook and it's many groups too trying to find uh you know more people and you know just other folks namely people they might want to help me write some of this stuff. I like doing it, but I mean, you know, different input can also be good, right? A little variety, you know, because I see this as a platform or I want it to be a platform like that I can express myself and maybe, you know, other people, maybe even your creativity, you know, use it as a, you know, I see it as a group of revolving writers and voice actors and creative types and and such to have a base to launch, you know, just a, just a little weird funniness into the world just something to do something to you know bounce ideas off of and use them and kind of put them out there and see what works so if you're interested or know anybody that might be let me know send them my way you can contact me on any of the social media things just search for elton reads a book a week or you can email me at elton reads a book a week at gmail.com you can get me uh you can get me there too or you can email me whatever you want it's fine too I'm trying to come up with Patreon stuff, you know, toying with the idea of posting all new scripts there. I actually have a biography book that I'm going to start doing special episodes over there. So, you know, think about contributing to the podcast because uh, anything that's contributed, I'll, I'll just put right back into the podcast. Yeah, you know, make it sound better because where I'm recording now, it's kind of terrible. You know, but I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about adding more stuff. Um 
complete list of all the books I have, which is a shit ton. There's a whole pile right next to me right here. And um, maybe I'll make a list of all the Easter eggs I've been hiding in the episodes. Uh, that, that too. Private Google Drive or something like that? I don't know. But if you'd like to contribute, you can do that through Patreon. Um, and you can also do it through this podcast, Anchor.fm page. I'll put links to those in the description here. I'd all right. All right. Yeah. I hear you. You're like, shut up, dummy. I'm not here for your stupid whining. I'm here for the podcast. Get it started already. Okay. Okay. Stop. Stop with the violent wording and whining. Really? You, we both know you're better than that. The book this time around is the memoir. So that happened. A memoir by John Cryer. It's a leather bound Topsy turvy tale of recollections from John Cryer, an actor turned fighter pilot, turned world renowned chef, turned back alley MMA style street fighter, whose motto, I've punched my way through life just to punch my way to your death. That motto is spoken in hushed reverence in many a smoke filled Southeast Asian blood sport arena. Okay, you know it's not that, but uh, but I had to try. Nope. It is instead exactly what its title indicates. It's a memoir by John Cryer, which is about John Cryer, written by John Cryer. It's a fucking John Cryer memoir. John. Okay, look, if we're being honest here, friend, I, I had to look up the difference between an autobiography and a memoir. I mean, I mean, I know what a memoir is, which is from the French word memoir meaning memory or reminiscence. Anyway, I know what that is, more or less. But I was thinking, isn't isn't a biography also written by the person it's about? I mean, is there a difference? Really? I mean, there has to be, right? Or do the French just toss out cooler-sounding words that mean the same thing for things? As it turns out, from a technical standpoint, they're the same. Exemple gratia. The autobiography of Benjamin Franklin by Benjamin Franklin is, of course, about... Benny Franklin's uh, life, written by the man himself. This, the same is also true for a memoir. However, the difference lies in the style and the content of what is written about that life. An autobiography is a person's whole life, from birth through the time of the writing of it, basically. I mean, they can't write about the death part yet because, you know, dead people can't write. A memoir is more of a highlight reel of life events and specific memories rather than a year-to-year forensic progression through a person's timeline. Get it? So, for instance, my autobiography, okay, would start with talking about my parents and their backgrounds briefly, names and dates of, you know, noted events and things like that. Move on to recounting where I grew up, preschool, elementary school, high school, on and on with corresponding dates, times and such. On like that to my demise at the hands of, or lack thereof, of a shark. My memoir, on the other hand, would be maybe, you know, talk briefly about being born and how I don't remember uh, doing that. And then jump to my memory of my favorite dog when when he was a puppy. And then to that completely dick-faced motherfucker who took my He-Man action figure from me on the school playground... It was Merman or maybe Beastman. It doesn't matter. He took it from me. He's a prick. I fucking hope you hear this and you are dying a slow death. No, no. I hope you're dead. Dead. No. And no, no. 
I'm not exaggerating. You're the first person that I ever really hated, and I still do. I hope you never found love and died alone, on fire, or drowning, in a fucking bathtub, falling from a fucking airplane, flying near fucking outer space. So that's the difference between an autobiography and a memoir. Now, who is John Cryer, and what's the shit about his memoir, you say? I say... He's the lead actor in one of my most favorite movies when I was a kid titled Hiding Out. It's a movie I'm sure you've seen at least a hundred times, so my rehashing of it with a clunky synopsis would only damage the untarnished memory you have of its perfection, right? Oh. Oh, you haven't seen it. Hmm. I see. You're one of, uh, you're one of those. Well, I shan't hold that against you, despite, full disclosure, my already having leveled a scathing judgment against you. Alas, we'll just have to move forward with you in the dark about its dazzling greatness and having committed the cardinal sin of never having seen it. Oh, I can't even imagine that level of ignominy. I'm kidding. I'm I'm kidding. You, you should see it, though. Seriously, it's a good comedy from the 80s. It's pretty fun. It's a little dark. Uh, but not too bad. John Cryer's hair is a funky kind of blonde and black combo thing. It's weird. Check it out. It's, it, it's, it's pretty good. No, no. You, you probably know John Cryer from the movie Pretty in Pink, uh, playing the role of the pattern-clashing hipster, rockabilly nerd, Ducky. Or maybe, more recently, from the show Two and a Half Men. Apparently, it's one of the longest-running sitcoms in television history, and I've never seen it. No joke. Yeah, I'm, I'm one of those people. Yeah. Regardless, he is the man that is neither Charlie Sheen, later Ashton Kutcher, nor the half-man that the title refers to. By the way, is, is the half-man a midget? Or is it a possible corpse situation? I'm picturing a a more gruesome weekend at Bernie's kind of kind of show where the protagonists like have to fool the world into believing that a that a dead man is still alive yet they're only working with with half of the body i mean in the best case scenario it's the you know it's the torso half and they put him you know i imagine they put him behind a desk like he's sitting down all the time and they kind of work the arms or I mean, come on, the worst case scenario is it's the bottom half and the writing gets a lot more interesting. You know what I'm saying? Like the, like I can't even imagine what the sex scenes would be like faking. Damn, I really need to see that show. Anyway, I'm kidding. The half man is a boy slash teenager, I think, right? Anyway, it's not half a dead body. (laughs) What's wrong with you? Or more to the point, me with the puppet dead body talk. Ugh. Seriously though, uh, I haven't seen the show. Just full disclosure, I know uh, I know what I know fr- about the show from what I read in the book. It sounds hilarious though. Maybe it's a sitcom. I'm- okay, so so let me start to talk about the book like uh, like the opening of a script. Okay, let's try let's try working it like a movie script. So exterior movie set. Day. That's not gonna work. I never I've never written a movie script. I can't write a script for shit. So let's go with pitching the script, maybe. I've done I've never done that either, but fuck it. I mean, okay. So we open on a hot movie set 
in Phoenix, Arizona. It's 1983, and a young, fresh-faced John Cryer gets doused with fake bird shit. Bird shit that John refers to as bird ejecta. That's a thing I learned from this book, which is great to learn stuff from books. Ejecta, meaning material that is forced or thrown out, especially as the result of a volcanic eruption, meteoric impact, or stellar explosion, which is the best way I've ever heard to describe projectile diarrhea. Thank you. Thank you, John Cryer, for expanding my scatological vocabulary. I'll be forcing ejecta into every shit talk I ever described to someone. And I'll do it in detail, too. Which is uh, more people than average. I don't know how I work that into so many conversations, but it happens. Gross. Anyway, it's it gets me stared at, sure. But knowledge is power. And sharing is caring. Regardless, this book is worth buying just for that lesson. Ejecta. Moving on. The movie's director is Robert Altman, an extremely talented motherfucker, and he envisions the scene ending with birds shitting on everyone, one of those people being a young John Cryer. The bird ejecta is ordered from the special effects department, and Altman, the director, has climbed up on a ladder over a young Mr. Cryer and proceeds to spoon fake bird shit on him until he's satisfied that he's been shit on enough. End scene. Everyone claps. It's brilliant. The camera pans to a digitally inserted Edward G. Robinson, naked from the waist down. He smiles while twisting his hips back and forth, causing his huge penis to slap against his thighs. Slap, 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 slap. The movie instantly garners the Oscar for Best Picture. The end. I added the Edward G stuff, but of course, um, but of course you pictured it and that's weird. And the fake bird shit is true. That, that part is true. And books that open with a cold open, which is what this did. It did open like this. It does open like this. They're the best. However, I believe it is in my thoroughly un, uh, expert opinion, the wrong opening for this book. No, I think Mr. Cryer would have done far better by starting it off with this hooker story. Well, one of them, anyway, kind of. It goes kind of like this. John was in a bad state after his divorce. He just wasn't feeling quote-unquote dateable. What that means, I don't fucking know. I've never been on an actual date date. The idea of dating always seemed to me like a... Like a vanilla safety word used in movies and TV in place of fucking or going out with someone or whatever. Why people need to hide behind words like fucking dating, not fucking dating, but you know, why they have to hide behind words like dating, I'll never know. John didn't feel he could land a woman is what he was basically saying. Yet he wanted to, he wanted to, uh, what's a safe TV friendly way of saying this? He wanted to get some ass. He wanted to, you know, knock boots, check the oil, do the no pants dance, ride the skin bus into Tuna Town, take all one eye to the optometrist, make a full pecker report for Kinsey. Okay, that last, the Kinsey one was mine, but, but God damn it, aren't euphemisms for sex fun as hell? Better than shit like dating. Ah, where was I? Oh yeah, 
John wanted to quote-unquote date, but wasn't feeling quote-unquote dateable. So he decided to pay someone for company and certain intimate pleasures. Those are his words, not mine. John wanted a hooker. Charlie Sheen suggested a few online purveyors because, of course, Charlie Sheen knows where to immediately score a hooker when asked offhand. Hey, hey, Charlie, would you know the number of a good mechanic? My car's been acting up. Uh, mechanic? I'm Charlie Sheen. Why the fuck would... I mean, maybe my dr- driver? I don't know. Maybe maybe my assistant. They might, they might think... I, I don't know. Maybe... maybe uh, uh, you know what? Scratch that, Charlie. Do you know where I could rent a woman's vagina? <laughs> I can name seven websites right now off the top of my head. Do you want them alphabetically or likely availability by radius from our current location? Because I can do both right now. John didn't use Charlie's recommendation. Instead, finding one through another vendor. And he did the deed on multiple occasions with the same professional sex worker. I'm trying safety words, so... What he found was that he spent a good deal of time just just talking with her, rather than, you know, getting some stank on the hangdown, smacking the salmon, going home with the box the kid came in. I could go on like this forever. So much fun. But neither the euphemisms or the talking is the point. It's bravery. That's that's what he should have led with. That's just keep that in mind. Okay. John Cryer was born in New York on April 16th, 1965. A birthday he shares with Charlie, not Sheen fucking Chaplin, motherfuckers. I love Charlie Chaplin. A lot of his movies are on HBO Max. If you get a chance, check them out. You won't be disappointed. John Cryer, however, isn't Charlie Chaplin. Other than splitting a birthday cake, they're only vaguely similar. Both are actors, both lean heavily comedic in their careers. Their last names begin with a C. They've both written, directed, and produced movies they've starred in. And that's about it, I think. I mean, Charlie was English. Uh, Cryer was American. Charlie was a silent-era movie star. John uh, stars in movies with sound and is rarely silent in them. Charlie is very clearly dead, and Cryer isn't. You get the idea. John was born to Gretchen Kiger. Kiger? Kiger? Kiger. How about Kiger? Because it's spelled K-I-G-E-R, like tiger. So Gretchen Kiger. I'm going with that. She, uh, she was a playwright, is a playwright, a playwright, songwriter, actress, and singer. His father, Donald David Cryer, an actor and singer who originally studied to be a minister, um, they were both performers on Broadway, which was John's quote-unquote, in, into the world of show business, of course, because his mom secured his first job. Uh, It was a small television spot. Fucking nepotism. I'm kidding. His parents don't own all of the actings or whatever, you know, let alone uh, control over who gets a fucking job or not. Anyway, seeing, you know, seeing them do their thing in in the world of their thing uh, gave him the inclination to do that thing it's kind of like the uh it's kind of like the hitman business if you think about it right you know you see your mom and dad mercilessly kill some poor sap that had a contract on his head and you think man i think i might want to do that one day just stare a man in the eye and say something cool like it's nothing personal just business or uh jimmy scalante sends his regards and then blam blam double tap 
One to the head, one to the chest. For certainty. You know. And then you swoop into the local, uh, you know, mafia dispatch office to pick up your money. Thanks for the check, Bruno. It was so fun. I feel like I should be paying you. <laughs> you know? Now I'm uh, now I'm off to buy another Cadillac and take a class on how to dispose of dead bodies. <laughs> okay. Bruno, of course, cracks a snide grin and says, Oh, you paid killer types. Nothing but a bunch of wise guys. I have no idea how murder for hire works. It's a really bad example. John knew little about what acting was all about. He was young and, and only knew what he knew about acting by uh, by hanging out backstage when his parents were in a show. Like uh, like during the original run of uh, the Broadway musical 1776. He would see the goings-on of the performers, you know, them playing the role on stage and then instantly transforming uh, back to normality, you know, back to being just normal when they came off and then back again when they went, went back out. Which, uh, you know, oddly enough, is, is more than most people know about acting. The musical 1776, for those who don't know, including me, uh, is a musical dramatizing the debate within the Second Continental Congress over the issue of independence and the ratification of Thomas Jefferson's Declaration. It is considered one of the finest in all of musical theater. Uh, it premiered on March 16, 1969, and stopped for a bit, then started again, ending on June 14, 1998, after a total of 1,584 performances from you know, 1969 to 98. It would have uh, been awesome if it was 1,776 performances, but, you know, that's just me. Anyway, uh, it was due to make a comeback, a revival kind of thing, on the back of uh, Hamilton's popularity, uh, the Hamilton musical's popularity. But uh, they were, they were going to stage a comeback uh, for 1776 in 2019, but fucking COVID. Goddamn viruses have no respect for good musical theater. So back to John, Johnny, John, Johnny, with his singing and acting parents. Being raised by performers wasn't enough to jostle Mr. Cryer onto the path of acting. No, no, it was something else entirely. But of course, directly related to it, obviously. He admittedly was just your average gaming slash book slash comic book slash movie slash television slash pop culture nerd. Uh, sounds vaguely familiar. So it took him a little while to catch the bug, as they say. They, of course, being Satan-worshipping, geriatric, gang-banging sex cults. Still with me? I tossed that in there in case you were, you know, drifting away. I'll say it again. Satan-worshipping, geriatric, gang-banging sex cults. Go throw up if you need to. Um, now, back to our regularly scheduled non-sex cult program. Personally, I've always been interested in the uh, strange little worlds that people live in. You know, like worlds so familiar and normal to those living in them, yet, yet unusual when seen from the outside. You know, sometimes they have uh, peculiar ways about them that those on the outside have no idea about, yet... Also, sometimes they wish they'd known about because it would it would have unlocked a trajectory that they, that they craved or, or wanted to be on. Like, take for instance, the acting trade that John Cryer uh, is obviously in and was in is in. There are a lot of ways to be successful in it, and lots of ways to break into the field. You know, some are easier than others, obviously, but but the most 
difficult hurdle is knowing how to, or, you know, where to start navigating your way into the sexy, drug-laden money, fame, and all the golden, jewel-plated statues that come with uh, being an actor. John's way in was partially via his parents already being actors themselves. That helps because they're already in that world already. You know, being working actors and singers, uh, they're involved in that world daily. And they know how to start into it or how they got into it and how other people do already because they're in that world. They're already wired into relationships and procedures to get started. That doesn't help everyone else on the planet who doesn't have acting parents but it was true for John Cryer. For me, it's just weird to think about. Like like the children of artists being able to take up their parents' field simply by being their child it just seems easier. It seems obvious, you know, but it's like, it's like they have a secret, you know? It's still interesting to me. I don't know. Like take, for instance, a person uh, interested in entering acting, okay? We're, we're just stick with that. A, a person interested in acting, in entering acting, can go to a high school that focuses on performing arts which I really didn't know existed. And they can attend an acting camp. What the fuck is an acting camp? John went to a performance art camp called Stage Door Manor in Lock Sheldrake, New York, which uh, over the past 40 years has trained thousands of young actors, many of whom uh, have gone on to a little bit of success in film, television, and theater, including uh, a couple of nobodies that you might not know of named Robert Downey Jr. and Natalie Portman, among others. It's still in operation today. Not sure how it's working with the pandemic, uh, really, but a session at the camp, which runs for three weeks, costs around $6,000-ish. According to the website, the average attendee goes uh, for two sessions out of three. They out of the three they offer per year, so twelve grand for the basic run. There's an application and tryout process, so get to fucking work if you want to go, or your kid to go. They don't take adults. Adults, of course, have to break into acting the old-fashioned way, sucking dick. No, I'm. I'm kidding. No, no. It's being molested by a Weinstein or Kevin Spacey type who promises to make you a star if you're down for a for an inappropriate sexual assault style diddle. Everyone knows that. It's an ass, grass, or gas. No one rides for free type of situation. Just make sure to spritz down the casting couch first. It has a few miles on it. I was going to go somewhere far more gross than that. Um, you should be proud of me. I pat myself on the back for not mentioning come once. I mean, I won't mention it again. John Cryer's motivation to attend the camp was to tag along with a buddy of his and to get it on with girls. I can attest to the fact that girls like the performing arts, you know, musical theater and theater in general and that like and the like. I myself took drama while in high school for the same reason John did, as an excuse to be surrounded by the ladies. If I had known drama camps had existed and that they were rife with women, I might not have pissed away so much time half-assing my way through Shakespeare trying to look down girls' shirts. And instead, maybe if I had put a, you know, a little more damn effort into it, 
Maybe I could have developed some talent, auditioned, and attended a camp for the performing arts and looked down way, way more girls' shirts. Fucking 2020 hindsight horseshit. So many missed opportunities to disturbingly creep on unwitting titties. Young Elton, damn it. Though, from what Cryer says about the kids singing on the bus ride to the camp, uh, the attendees are mostly interested in musicals and uh, all the annoying trappities that go along with that. I mean, I imagine these kids can probably carry a tune with the auditioning and all that, but uh, I'm not, I don't know if I'd be willing to risk that, you know, just to... I mean, those titties would have to be pretty nice to hear the sound of music sung a hundred times by a choir of awkward, puberty-stricken girls. I mean, despite its uh, girl-heavy ratio, John's passion for acting was awakened at Stage Door. It was while performing a tiny role in an ecological musical called Earthlings that John claims to have been bitten by the acting bug. His character, a businessman, was introduced with the line, Joe was a very rich man. John then walked forward and said, I'm a very rich man. Laughter ripped its way around the audience and he was hooked. His mother, who attended the first performance, said that it was a uh, it was at this moment she could see a telltale glint in his eye that signaled, must keep doing this. John laid that idea to rest, saying it was the copious amounts of heroin laced with methamphetamines he did after the musical that actually convinced him. Fucking acting camps, man. Just wild drug binges disguised as theater geeking. It's just shameful. That last bit was a lie, if you couldn't tell. It's... Okay. It is true that, that at that moment on stage, uh, it was a catalyst for him to pursue acting as a career and livelihood, though. That was true. It was also during his stint at Stage Door that John seems to have picked up a one-sided bone of contention with a Mr. Robert Downey Jr. It's one of those types of things where John is a little, little peeved. He, he's a little peeved about something, but Robert uh, would, would be like, um, what the fuck are you talking about? That kind of thing. The point of contention is as follows. Well, first, okay, first I have to lay a little groundwork for context. Okay, during the, during a kid's stay at the camp, they're involved in many uh, full-on productions put on by the camp over the course of their session. They learn everything from stage setup to lighting and so on. They're also given classes on dramatic theory, acting, movement, emoting, and such. These classes are given by coaches and personnel with years of experience in both performing and uh, show business in general. It's, uh, it's during one of these classes or exercises in one of these classes that John's story takes place. It's an exercise or drill, as he calls it. Um, it's called the subway improv, in which the edge of the stage represents the lip of a subway platform. The backstory uh, for this drill is that there's a serial killer on the loose in the city. Everyone on the stage plays a citizen entering the subway, and without explicitly saying so, you have to make some kind of acting choice that communicates this citywide fear. Dr. Jack Romano, the artistic director at Stage Door, and a key influential figure for John, would clap his hands to signify the train coming into the station, which would end the exercise. The improv started, and John came in with a deliberate sense of playing up the weird and creepy. He whistled a tune and drew attention to himself as if 
he were the serial killer himself. Then when Jack started clapping and the imaginary train pulled in, John revealed he wasn't the serial killer by leaping off the front of the stage and was instead someone committing suicide. Jack let out a horrified gasp. No one ever did that in this class. I've never seen that, he said. It was a good day for John. Cut to a few years later, and he discovers that his story of him jumping off the stage and committing fake suicide by fake subway train had somehow been attributed to fellow stage door manor alumnus Robert Downey motherfucking Jr. It was even published in a book about stage door manor called Theater Geek. That son of a bitch. John takes umbrage with this misappropriation. It's a moment he's very proud of. And I agree. The record needs to be set straight. John Cryer did the memorable suicide jump improv thing, not Robert Downey fuck himself Jr., who, by the way, John says was famous at stage door for getting care packages of weed sent to him by his father. Take that, Downey, you shitheel, with your fame, millions of dollars for playing a now iconic role that will be remembered forever. You're dead since you pot, bitch. <laughs> Fucking. Ah, fuck, John. That sounds pretty cool to me. I don't know. I'll, I'll give you the suicide thing, but weed in the mail? That's pretty badass. I'm sorry. Uh, this, this one-way tussle wasn't the last that John Cryer was to, was to have in his life. No, sir. He's caused a lot of one-way friction in Hollywood. Like an abused passerby made surly by years of inadvertent injustice by the unknowing hands of Hollywood favorites. John goes for the throat when it comes to bloodlust-level retribution. Okay, maybe not... Maybe not bloodlust-level. You know, maybe not... Maybe not even... Not even animosity or anything. Actually, John seems pretty cool with everything all around. I mean, I just... I just wanted to build up some drama. You know, my bad, John. If you're listening, you're great. I'll keep going. I'm going to skip ahead in the timeline a bit because uh, I don't like to give away the milk for free. You know what I'm saying? Uh, this is a great memoir that is absolutely worth uh, worth your purchase, uh, worth purchasing. So buy it. It's really good. After Stage Door, John went into the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art in London. It was there that he learned what he calls the one pure performance technique every actor should know and is a cheapening of the art form if they don't. That technique is pantomime. John spent most of his London stint mastering the art of miming. Not only is he fluidly adept at being trapped inside invisible walls, struggling to pull invisible rope and walking against non-existent wind, he can do so by creeping out an annoying passerby at a 35% faster rate than an untrained mime. That's documented. Everything after the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art was bullshit. But you knew that. Yes, he did go there. No, he's not a mime. Though I could see that uh, as a possibility. During his time in London, he learned things that he says helped him to uh, free himself as an actor. Uh, especially the encouragement to embrace the outlandish, which would help him a great deal later, I think. After studying in London... Uh, he came back and uh, looked for work. It was during the, uh, this time that his next great unrequited rival would emerge. 
and two Goliaths of the New York stage were buttheads enough to level Broadway and blot out the noonday sun. Okay, but only but only one side because it the other guy the other guy had no idea. The other guy was Matthew Bueller Bueller Broderick. He was uh, he was becoming the next big deal on Broadway, following a starring role in an off-Broadway production of Torch Song Trilogy. Um, he was also the lead in a not yet premiered back then uh, Neil Simon play called Brighton Beach Memoirs, which is one of my favorite movies of all time. Another one. Um, he he'd also been in a couple of movies, including another favorite of mine, Motherfucking War Games, a strange game. The only winning move is not to play. How about a nice game of chess? That movie is so great. Sorry. I had a moment there. So needless to say, uh, Matthew Broderick was the new It Kid. And it just so happens that a young John Cryer greatly resembled him. How fucking lucky is that? Or or is it? I mean, if you're constantly being mistaken for the other guy, uh, how do you get your own buzz going, right? Like fucking... Fucking Broderick, always outdoing John with his similar facial structure. That son of a bitch. Though it did help John uh, Cryer land uh, roles in plays Matthew Broderick had recently vacated. Still, motherfucking Broderick and his analogous bone structure. <laughs> but uh, but John did well. Uh, he moved up, level moved leveled up in the acting world. Um, he was auditioning for movies uh, after his uh, successful run on Broadway. And, you know, Robert Altman wants to meet him uh, to fit him for some fake bird shit. That movie was called O.C. and Sticks. Uh, as of my writing of this, you can find it on YouTube. I'll put up a link on Twitter at uh, Elton Reads A Lot. Be sure to follow it uh, when you're there. That's a plug. Okay. The, uh, the fake bird shit scene is about 33 minutes in, uh, just so you know. Now, now, technically, this is the first movie John Cryer was ever in, but it, it wouldn't be released until three years after it was filmed, long after uh, other movies he was in after that one was filmed, after they had already been in the theater. Get it? So it's another way that Hollywood uh, fucks with the with, with the audience's sense of reality. You're like, man, how does this guy, how is he in so many fucking movies so fast? It's because he worked in them years ago and they just release them now. It's fucking weird. Anyway, well, now, now John's second movie though, released first, was co-starring a young woman he'd have a awkward relationship with. One, Demi Moore, a.k.a. Demi Sexy Smoky Voice Moore. A.K.A. Demi Brad Packmore. A.K.A. Miss Demi Divorce Hard Willis. A.K.A. Demi. Let's overlook the weird age gap. Kutcher. A.K.A. Okay, no more A.K.A.'s. And this is the time John Cryer uh, and she were knocking boots. You know? Um, bending her over the barrel and showing her the 50 states. Bone storming. You know, doing the dipsy doodle, uh, entangling the lower beards, uh, doing the four-legged foxtrot, shampooing the Wookiee, you know, uh, thumping thighs. You get the idea. Who knew there would be so many sex euphemisms in this episode? John Cryer, 
you're an inspiration. A disclaimer, um, by the way, John never explicitly said that they were fucking, but he did say they were kind. They kind of dated, which I took to mean kind of fucking. It was during the filming of No Small Affair that they began hanging out together on set and off. They were, um, they were inseparable, palling around in Demi's convertible that uh, that had no brakes because young actors in the 1980s put money where it needed to go. Uh, cocaine habits and Aquanet hairspray priorities. God damn it. According to his telling, John thought their relationship was more serious than she did. When filming uh, was wrapped, she just went off to bang other, sorry, date other people and party. While John was pretty sure he was still her boyfriend while she did it. That wasn't the case, however. Uh, she went off to enjoy her rebellious party years deep into middle age while uh, he saddened and moved on. Things like that happen. You know, you get really close. You have a fun relationship for a while. Uh, one you think will go on for years to come. Then something happens and some bastard kid walks off with it on a fucking playground. I hope you're living a life that has been stripped of every ounce of happiness, dickhead. Merman deserved better than you. Or maybe it was man at arms. Moving on. Despite starring in a few movies... Uh, John leaned more toward Broadway, mainly because the movies he did were, uh, they, they, uh, fucking tanked. They fucking tanked so bad. They fucking, they, they were bad. That is until he auditioned for a movie written by one of Hollywood's most famous reclusive geniuses, John Hughes. The movie was called Pretty in Pink. And when we come back, we'll explore the movie that made John Cryer a star. Stay tuned. Sorry. Sorry, it sounded like a good dramatic break. Stay tuned. Wait, what the fuck? Did you think I was going to cut to a commercial or something? Fucking, I wish. Then, then I'd be getting paid. Of course, glorious day. What was I right? John Cryer is in Pretty in Pink. Right off the top, I'm not going to give you the whole nut. All right? I'd rather John did that for you via his book. If you want uh, to know all about it, for God's sake, pick it up. You won't be disappointed. There's a lot of uh, pretty and pink stuff in here. The whole dance scene thing. He goes. Uh, he, he tells that whole story. A, a lot. Of, a lot of good stuff. You will really like it. Pick it up. I will continue with my awkward John Cryer feuds, though. In the case of the Pretty and Pink cast, um, there was some weirdness. For those who aren't familiar with Pretty and Pink, it's one of John Hughes's. High school dramedies, Brat Pack trilogy movies. The Brat Pack is a nickname given to a group of young Gen X actors who frequently appeared together in teen-oriented coming-of-age films in the 1980s. First mentioned in a 1985 New York Magazine article that said, This is the Hollywood Brat Pack. It is to the 1980s what the Rat Pack was to the 1960s. A roving band of famous young stars on the prowl for parties, women, and a good time. The young stars were Emilio Estevez, Anthony Michael Hall, Rob Lowe, Andrew McCarthy, Demi Moore, Judd Nelson, Molly Ringwald, and Ali Sheedy. Unfortunately, John wasn't considered part of that mix. My guess is that he was too busy not being old enough and not saddled with enough uh, substance abuse problems. Uh, whether his positioning as an outsider of that group had anything to do with the awkwardness between his castmates is anyone's guess. Okay. However, 
there was some shit that wasn't right. Molly Ringwaldenson's son and Andrew Senator McCarthy weren't very friendly with the crier. No. John, John, ever the friendly playmate, uh, actor, person, felt that since his previous movie experiences were more of a team effort kind of thing, everyone was chummy, um, you know, let's have uh, fun kind of affair. Why should this one be any different? Well, Molly and Andrew were having none of that shit. Choosing to uh, keep him at arm's length, or so I took it. This was despite John's many attempts to buddy up to them. On one such occasion, he even played a light-hearted practical joke involving sedating Molly, staging a fake murder scene around her unconscious body, then rousting her awake with blood-curdling screams of, My God, Molly! Why did you stab Andrew to death? He was only offering you blow, and you cut his face off, Molly! His face! Can you believe... She had the nerve to feel traumatized by this, even picking up a meth addiction she attributed to the PTSD she claimed she suffered because of the incident. Ridiculous. Take a fucking joke, Ringwald. You would have heard them laughing if you weren't screaming so damn much. Goodness. Hold on. Hold on. Sorry. I'm, I just received word that... Wait. Yeah? No, I, ju I just received word that... What I just said was, in fact, bullshit. Sorry about that. The stars did have difficulty getting along, though. Andrew and Molly being more amicable with each other than with John. That's a shame, really. Because, I mean, perhaps he could have included them in his later success, but no. And where's Andrew McCarthy now, huh? Where's he? Making movies, playing second fiddle to a corpse puppet. It's a tough break when the star of the movie you're in is a man playing dead. He literally fucking lays there and gets higher billing than you. The corpse's name is in the fucking title. That must feel like shit. Cut, cut, cut. Andrew, Andrew, what the fuck are you doing? I need you to act confused. Instead, you're acting like a whiny asshole. Jesus! Just fucking act confused, for fuck's sake. Get ready to roll again. Get ready to roll again, people. Andrew just need, needed a little persuading to do his fucking job. Oh! Oh, oh no, 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 no. Oh, no, no, no. No, Terry. Terry. No. Great job as the dead guy, buddy. No, no, no. No. The way you're just laying there? Phenomenal. I... I thought we had an actual corpse on the set. No, it was so real, man. So real. So real. Maybe, hey, you know what? You Let's let's face it. Maybe some of your chops, maybe some of your chops here will rub off on your uh, your quasi-actor support and cast member here, Andy. Uh, maybe, maybe Andrew here can learn a little something. You, you, Terry, you, Oscar contender. Andrew over there, a fucking parking lot attended at the Oscars. At best. Hell, hell, no, fuck that. Hell, hell, looking for loose change in the seats of cars he'll never afford at the Oscars. Parking lot attendant. Jesus. And action. That that was harsh. So I'm sorry, Andrew McCarthy. I don't I don't know you. Uh, you're probably a, a nice person. You seem like you would. Be. I'm sorry. I mean, who knows? Actually, I was just uh, rewatching the show Monk. And saw Andrew McCarthy in an episode. It was pretty good. He looks good. Good guy. I don't know. Moving moving on. 
John did, however, find a friend in James Ultron, Robert California Spader, the, the 80s teen movies, leading asshole of the moment. They used to they used to actually kick it in his trailer in their downtime. They, they're still good friends um, because that's what John is. It, it, once you're his friend, you have a friend for life. You need a ride to the airport? John's your man. Can't think of a good Mother's Day gift? Call John. Trying to dismember a body you've accidentally run down while drunk driving and are looking to cover up the killing and while wiping away tears of guilt, regret, and fear, you suddenly have an idea for a comedic sitcom involving half of a man's body and you need someone to help flesh out the idea? John's just a phone call away. He's a good guy. He'll, he'll work the lines with you. Back to Spader. According to John, James Blacklist Spader not only knew he was uh, teen Hollywood's favorite asshole, he enjoyed it. Or something like it. I mean, I imagine it was all that uh, sweet cash flow coming from his boarding school accent and freakishly natural air of snobbery that really eased the pain of being uh, cast as a douchebag. He doesn't seem to be uh, anything like the douchebag he was cast as, but I mean, he's a good actor. He really is. Good for him. But after John Cryer's 80s and uh, early 90s run, uh, things started to dry up career-wise. It was a few bad roles in shit movies that, uh, that did him in. He goes into detail about how that happens in Hollywood. You just end up on the wrong, the wrong slope. You end up uh, skiing into a, a pile of shit. Okay, now, now I'm going to skip ahead again. A little. It's not because uh, anything between this and that is, uh, is boring. It's just that there's such a lot of good stuff. There, there, there's a lot of, of good things in the book. You should. I'm trying to pick my battles here, or John's battles. You understand what I mean. Enter Charlie Sheen. Charlie and John have been rolling on Two and a Half Men for a few years now, and things were going great. Mr. Cryer wasn't in a dry spell either sexually or professionally. There are kids and stuff. Things are trucking along swimmingly. And then everything goes to shit. It isn't, it, it isn't John Cryer's fault, of course, because uh, as history has shown, Charlie Sheen is an insanely loose cannon when high on, I imagine, every narcotic money can buy. If you search up the insanity of the time uh, Charlie Sheen was fired from Two and a Half Men, none of it was uh, John Cryer's fault. Sheen had a history of going off the rails and was a high-risk hire to begin with. It was part of his appeal, okay? So when he made the inevitable track back to Drugville, it was no surprise that it would uh, maybe almost kill any project he was involved with at the time. The same, uh, the same almost happened for Two and a Half Men, of course, because, well... When you hire a potential train wreck, you get you might get a train wreck. I mean, he was hired for a reason. And that reason was to get ratings. People say they go to things like NASCAR races for the wins. But come on, it's for the wrecks. To see someone be on the losing end of a 200-mile-an-hour fight with a wall, well, it's almost like those tickets paid for themselves. The is he or isn't he of whether Charlie Sheen was going to implode was kind of a... It's kind of the draw. And boy, did he. In spectacular fashion. Sure, he can be funny. I mean, he's a great actor. Hell, he's 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 won a Golden Globe. And even a TV Land Future Classic Award. Whatever the fuck that is. Still, people got the well-run race. 
but they also got the world-class wreck, too. I watched an interview from that time, uh, from back then, just to refresh my sense of the crazy, and oh boy, did I put a did I put a rosy gloss on the guy? I mean, uh, when asked about, in this interview I saw, when he was asked about the last time he did drugs, he stipulates that he that he couldn't recall in uh, in a in a in a very wonky he anyway he said he couldn't recall um pro tip folks if someone looks like they're on the tail end of a week-long bender and they say they can't remember the last time they got high it's because uh they just got high all right that's why Back then, he was a mile-a-minute, narcissistic, rambling mess. Hashtag winning my ass. Get that walking midlife crisis motherfucker some therapy and a nap. Side note, by the way, Mr. Sheen is currently lying low after sabotaging his own career. Reportedly, um, he's going to therapy regularly. And uh, my guess, also napping. In the midst of the freakout, John speculates rather lightly in diplomatic fashion, as most uh, Hollywood actors and people in that community do. He speculates that Charlie lost his shit. It was something about shyness or problems with authority and, and confrontation. My guess is Charlie missed a beat and thought, what the hell? I mean, it's I've been sober so long. What's one line of coke going to hurt? It's a party. And the slippery slope wrote the rest of the story for him. He did burn every bridge he crossed at the time, though, including insulting John, which he later apologized for, sort of. He called him a troll or something? I don't know. Still, Mr. Cryer lays out the skinny in detail in the book. I won't spoil it for you. Read it. However, it's all just a little sad, though, especially when you lump in. uh, He later got HIV, I think, on top of all of that. Fucking, I mean. Poor, well-to-do, famous actor, son of a famous actor. Bastard. I mean, damn. Anyway, regardless, all these non-feud feuds with other actors aren't the real gist of John Cryer's memoir. It's the recollected story of a man's life, and a pretty awesome one at that. Side note, it's a book that was written because he lost a bet, by the way. No shit. Yeah, his manager and his agent said something like, hey, uh, we think we can get you a book deal. Have you ever considered writing a book? And he said, no, but uh, hey, if you can get me a book deal, I'll write one. Thinking, you know, of course, who the fuck's going to give him a book deal, right? They got him one in a week. That's a true story. Look, his memoir is is great for a lot of reasons. Um, One of which I think for me, I don't think it was intended for this, but... What I took away from it was a was an underlying thread of quiet confidence. John paints himself throughout as a quiet outcast of sorts. He says uh, he was a theater geek in a science high school, or or that he was a clean cut nerd type at the time of uh, party hard teen actors and stuff. But buttoning him up against Charlie Sheen and jeez, that's just fucking oil and vinegar, oil and vinegar, yeah. Oil and water. What the fuck am I saying? Still, I got something different out of it. I came away thinking, uh, you have to be pretty confident in yourself to stay the course of being a nerdly nerd in a world that he moves through. And, you know, he, and to stay yourself. 
it takes a lot of confidence and courage. It's easy to fall in line when expectations almost dictate that you should have a cookie cutter persona. And he didn't do that. He said himself, you know, he's a, he's a clean cut, effeminate guy that's mistaken for being Jewish and, uh, and Matthew Broderick a lot. And he's all right with that. That's, that's a, that's a strange course to hold yourself onto on purpose. That's why I thought he should have led with the hooker story. Because there he was, a lonely guy, a mostly famous lonely guy, who was horny. and had no prospects on the horizon, you know, uh, for a relationship. Does he sit around moping, thinking, man, if I go web shopping for ass, I'm going to end up on uh, some tabloid cover or a gossip show. For They'll be rerunning it from here to Israel, man. But no. Instead, you know, it's safer for me just to, just to suck up the loneliness and stuff. And stick to stick to my room, uh, you know that won't hurt my career. Just just another Saturday night, but I ain't got nobody. I got some money because I just got paid. Now how I wish I had someone to lay pipe on, just ass. Damn it, damn it! Can I just get some ass, man? I wish I had a woman. You know, and then he howls sadly at the moon while masturbating furiously, and then. Uh, and then he kind of just doubles over a little bit, fading into a to a gentle sobbing. Like <laughs> that one, that one weird. But you get my meaning. No, he he took his problems, but you know he grabbed him by the nuts. No, see, he took his problems by the testicles, and uh, and he phoned up a hooker. Not just once, but multiple times. That's guts, friends. Uh, that's lionly courage of a of a different color. Yeah, that's a mix. I mix those refer- references. Still, courage. I couldn't do it. I'd have hung up half a dozen times and never called back out of fear that uh, my number was being traced and the police were on their way. Plus, he wrote about it in his fucking memoir. That kind of stuff lives on forever. Maybe you don't want to preserve that for for posterity, but but John has that underlying courage. I think that mutters, you know, "Fucks all of you." The hook of shit staying in because uh, I'm me, and that's what I do. Bam, murder for hire. Uh, maybe not murder for hire stuff, but still, that confidence is there, and that's pretty badass in my book. Not that I have one. All in all, John Cryer makes out in the end. As, uh, you know, would be expected. I mean, it's his book. He entered the Hollywood machine, went through some really fucking weird, funny, nerdy, effeminate, sex work, elbow rubbing, paparazzi, awkwardness, dry cleaning. And he's still making it. And good for him. He's a good guy. A little passive aggressive at times. But, but still, I mean, who isn't really? I mean, he's just a flesh and blood man. I mean, he's not dead after all, right? He's not, he's not half a body behind a desk being worked. I mean, he wrote his own fucking memoir for fuck's sake. Thank you for listening to Elton Reads a Book a Week. Uh, if you enjoyed this episode, be sure to follow it on uh, all the social medias. On Elton Reads a lot, I think, on Twitter. That's, that's one of them. And if you want to contribute... That's even better. You can do that through patreon.com. I'll put the links in the description of this episode. If you want to reach me, I'll put an email down there too. 
it down there. Like I fucking like I know where this description is going to be found. Like it's universal. It's not anyway. So thank you for listening. I truly appreciate it. I really do. It. Thank you. And uh, you know, please, if you can, and I know you can, start a book this week. Okay. Don't let it die out. Thanks.